0: We're going to jump in now, we're we're carrying on the series, just a little four-part summer series on the life of Stephen, what we know about him in the book of Acts. So why don't you turn to Acts chapter 7, we're going to pick up from verse 51, I think it's on page 1606, page 1606, the Bible's at the back there, and we'll uh, read from verse 51 of Acts chapter 7. But up to now, um, what do we know about Stephen? Well, we know that in a church of... Several thousand people. He, along with a few friends, uh, were selected by the people of the church as standout men to run their their kind of benevolent mercy ministry arm of the church. So taking care of the widows who were dependent on the church's kindness. And he was one of these guys who set out as being quite remarkable in his wisdom and in faithfulness and being full of the Holy Spirit, it says, and so these guys are set apart. But then he seems to sort of go up a gear within a few verses. And he's not only performing sort of miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, but he's also preaching and doing apologetics. I don't know if you guys have ever seen... William Lane Craig in debate, American um, philosopher and Christian academic who um, debates atheist, Bill Craig. He's wonderful. You can look him up on YouTube. Um, but he was kind of... Stephen is doing the kind of Bill Craig stuff of his day, except without the PhD from German university. He's just a kind of... Um, I don't know. He doesn't seem to have any kind of training or anything for this. It's just the power of God on him, his uh, exposure to what the apostles are teaching. And it says that people were not able to to overcome what he was saying when he's in discussion, when he's in debate, when he's preaching. They were not able to contradict what he's saying. And as often happens in these situations, I mean, I've been in, like when I was at one of the William Lane Craig debates, it was fascinating how, as they had these various interchanges, from he was speaking, and an atheist um, academic in, from a London university was speaking, and it was so interesting to see how every time um, Bill Craig made a really great point. The whole row behind me of, of people who are on the other side, as it were were, kind of, were, 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 were sort of calling out obscenities under their breath. And one man was heckling him from the balcony. And it seems that the more watertight your case is, the more aggravated that the, the opposition becomes on these issues. And, so, and it's true in so many areas of life, but not least in, in religious matters. And so this guy obviously gets under everyone's skin. To the point where they start to trump up these false charges against him. And he's brought before the religious council, the Sanhedrin, and they begin, and he begins his defense really. And he's speaking at length about his beliefs and why he's speaking the way he's speaking. And the more he speaks, the more angry they get, and the more direct he becomes as well. So we, we're really jumping in. I'm just going to read to you just the very end of his speech to the, San, to the, to the religious council, and, um, and you'll get... An idea for what this man was like. So I'll read from verse 51 to the end of the chapter. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he would said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. We are coming now to the last chapter of Stephen's life and what happens here, his martyrdom. And I want us to think about him as a martyr. He's noted for being the first martyr in in Christian history, history. And uh, I need to just begin by clarifying what we're talking about when we talk about him as a martyr. It's a word that's been massively misunderstood and twisted uh, at, in, in its use. And to begin with, it does not mean somebody who, who commits suicide in the name of religion. Um, that's a very recent use of the word, and it has no relation to what, how we'd understand it in referring to Stephen. And nor does it mean somebody who's a victim. Um, a martyr is not thought of as somebody who's a victim, uh, that it's more of a positive word. What it means is, uh, the original, where it comes from, is, is from the Greek, a Greek word. It just means somebody who, who's a witness, somebody who, who bears testimony. So if you were to go into a court of law and uh, give your account of things, you were a martyr. But obviously, as, as the decades wore on and things began to get a little bit more heated for Christians to the point of out-and-out of out, uh, persecution of the church... It came to a point where to be a faithful witness, somebody who, who accurately and, uh, and honestly holds to what you believe, was to put yourself in danger of being put to death for your faith. So the two words, are kind of the meaning is conflated, so that to be somebody who, who bears witness to who Jesus is, is to be somebody who's, who's, who's very likely to find yourself on death row. And that's where the word moved to. In, uh, in the early centuries so that um, it was being used of people who died for the faith. And that's how we understand it today, isn't it? Now I think that the, in thinking about Stephen's role as the first martyr, I, I believe this is of the most highest importance for us as Christians because we are called, all of us, to in some sense be a martyr for the Christian faith. And it's not to say that any of us necessarily will ever actively be put to death for the faith. I have no reason necessarily to exclude that either. I know friends of friends, certainly, who have been put to death for their faith. So I don't think it's that as far removed from us as as we often think. However, Christ did call us to take up our cross, in a sense to die to ourselves for the purpose of being a, a true disciple of him and of carrying the message of who he is. So there's nothing more important for us in terms of understanding our life mission what the church is here to do than to understand what it means to be a witness martyr in the way that Stephen was. I think this is hugely important for us. And I want to show you how he carries this mantle in three ways. In what he said, in what he saw, and in how he died. In what he said, and what he saw, and how he died. So let me begin with what he said. You can see how... Stephen really isn't a guy who holds back. He, he, he calls things as he sees it, doesn't he? And I think the nature of, of a, a witness is that they have to be somebody who tells the truth. So you can see the kind of language that, that Eugene was talking about last week. We overlap with his passage there in verse 51. He ta- calls them things like this, stiff-necked, which was basically a way from the Old Testament of likening people to cows which in any culture is always offensive, isn't it? To cause, possibly the exception of Hindu culture, where that's the entertainment is to become a cow at the top of the karmic sort of thing. But um, not, not for Jewish people, certainly not in, in our culture. He's calling them stiff-necked, like cows, who just are unwilling to be led. And then he calls them uncircumcised. Now, he's not in any way... Um, speaking about their bodily situation because they had all been circumcised at the eighth day, they were, they were true Jews. He's talking, he says, you are uncircumcised in heart and ears, which is just a way of saying that what your body says about you doesn't line up with what your heart is saying. That whereas your body is saying, I'm a part of God's people, and, and we do that with our bodies when when we, when we come to church, don't we? When we raise our hands in worship, when we sing songs, when we pray, our bodies are doing one thing. But he's saying that in your lives there's this disjunction between what your bodies are doing as circumcised Jews and what your hearts are doing as people who are actually resistant to God's word. You're not really soft in your heart and, and then he goes on, and it just gets, it goes from bad to worse. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. We were taught in marriage counseling, you never say the word always. Uh, When you say you always do that, you never do that, you're actually um, basically lying usually, aren't you? So when you say you always snore, like it's just not true usually, or you never wash the dishes, it's just not true. And here he is, but he's speaking truthfully of these people, he's saying you always resist the Holy Spirit. You think you're good sound believers, but no, not a bit of it. And it goes from bad to bad to worse, he calls them uh, murderers of the righteous one, which you know, in any context, these, this kind of language is going to meet with an angry response, isn't it? And I find that to be so revealing of what it means to be a witness, that he's willing to speak it as it is, he's willing to offend. And you see how, how, they, re, how they react to him. They, it says they, in verse 57 that they cried out, they start shouting. You can imagine they go, la, 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 and they start blocking their ears. It reminded me of that song by that great philosopher of our age, Sam Smith, who says, he says, Hush, don't speak. When you spit your venom, keep it shut. I hate it. When you hiss and preach about your new Messiah, because your theories catch fire. He goes, I'm covering my ears like a kid. When your words mean nothing, I go la la la. I'm turning up the volume when you speak, because if my heart can't stop it, I find a way to block it. I go la la, la 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 la, na 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 na. You <laughs> know the song? Yeah. <laughs> that is what is happening here. He's so direct, he's so uncompromising that they just have to shut up what he's saying and and say, we're not listening to you anymore. What's the issue that we need to think about here then, about his character as a martyr in what he speaks? And I think it's this, that the issue, the core issue is when it comes to religious matters is whether truth or or feelings are going to rule. Surely we can recognize that the character of a credible witness is a person who will speak the truth regardless of what feelings it will provoke. If you went into a court of law and you were to adjust your testimony because it might upset people, you're not a credible witness. But truth must trump feelings. Now, I know we have to Exercise some wisdom and reasonableness about this in, in general life. Like when your wife says, "Does this dress make me look fat?" Um, you know, you don't want to say yes, and you don't want to say no. Your fat makes you look fat. You, th- there is some wisdom that has to be exercised here, but but when when it comes to issues, religious matters, truth has to trump feeling, and I find that to be a really To be honest, it's the focal point of where the the issues come in our age because it seems to me that increasingly people want feeling to trump fact. And I was reading just this week, there was an article that had appeared in The Atlantic about a, a, a trend that's happening stateside in universities, where it says something strange is happening in their colleges and universities. Students are demanding that campuses become safe spaces cleanse of all words, ideas, and subjects that might might cause discomfort or give offense. So last year, students at Harvard asked their law professor not to lecture on rape law or even use the word violate, lest it cause distress. The new demand is for trigger warnings to be attached to any books or courses that might disturb a student's emotional well-being. And it provokes so much thought, doesn't it? I mean, whose offence is more important? So if you walk in, you know, and w- which offences are we supposed to avoid? So if you walk in and I'm offended by your skinny jeans, does that mean that I, you have to attach a trigger warning whenever you walk into the room? Or if you're offended by my being offended at your skinny jeans, who's, whose offence wins? It makes me think about how life itself is an offensive thing. When you walk through life, you will encounter offensive situations, situations you would rather not be in. Death is offensive. People cheating on you is offensive. People backstabbing you is offensive. And we have to talk about them before they happen or else you'll never be prepared for the realities of life. And surely the only way to ever truly change is to be confronted with things that offend you. If you were never confronted with ideas that offended you, then you would be doomed to a life of being stuck as who you are. Never being changed. Now, I'm saying all this because when we come back to what Stephen's doing here, the reality is that the gospel is inherently offensive. The message about Jesus carries a trigger warning because it will always offend some. Paul talks about it in in 2 Corinthians, uh, I think it's chapter chapter 2, he says, he talks about it as being an aroma that has a different fragrance to different people. You know when you're a child, it's, it's said that some kids are more sensitive to the bitter flavor in Brussels sprouts, and they hate them, and others don't taste it, and I think it's true of the gospel that... He he talks about it being the aroma from life to life to some and from death to death to others. So that when they hear the gospel, for some people it's as though they're smelling the most sweet fragrance they've ever smelled in their life. And they think, this is what I've always been looking for. And others, they hear the gospel and it's like they're they're walking into an abattoir where the meat has been left hanging for weeks upon end with no treatment and rotting. It just stinks. You ever smell rotting meat? He says, that's what it's like, the gospel. He's just speaking from experience. He says, some people, I've just noticed, they love it when I talk to them about Jesus. And some people absolutely hate it because the gospel has this inherently offensive aspect to it. It's telling people things they don't want to hear, like the message that Stephen's communicating here, that we are all sinners, that we all must come to God for mercy and grace, that we cannot earn your way to salvation. All of this cuts away at human pride. It cuts it at the root and says you can only, only know God through Jesus Christ. A statement which is so offensive to our modern Western liberal mindset that most people do not want to hear that. And so it brings me to this thought that I think to be a witness in the way that Stephen was, you have to be willing to cause offense. And I know that it's becoming more and more difficult in our age. We live at a time when even the things you think people want to censor. So, you know, a few weeks ago when the newly elected liberal Democrat re- leader, Tim Farron, who, who, who identifies as an evangelical uh, Christian, so he's kind of on our team, and um, he, he was on, being interviewed, and I think really the hot issue for him is, is his faith. People don't understand how his faith can be married with politics because we live in a pluralistic society, a society that is a mix of different people and different faiths. And so for anyone to truly believe what they believe is going to conflict with the spirit of the age. And so there he was being interviewed by this Channel 4 interviewer and she just kept asking him this question. Is homosexuality a sin? And his point was that Christianity tells us Lots of people are sinners, we're all sinners, we all need Jesus. And that he'd, 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 he'd realized that he can separate what he believes from his public policy and all these kinds of things. He's saying reasonable things. But she kept wanting to press him and press him and press him because she wasn't satisfied with what he's saying. She wants to be satisfied about what he's thinking. That you cannot even think something different from the cultural norm. And there's so many problems even with the question. You know, to ask the question, is such and such a sin, assumes that we're agreed that there is such thing as sin in the first place. But if there's such thing as sin in the first place, then aren't we also agreed that there's someone who defines what right and wrong is? Someone bigger than us, someone cosmic, and someone who is a a lawgiver above the law itself. And if there is such a person, then why are you asking Tim (laughs) Farron? You can see what... To be a witness is, in what you speak, is to, is, you're guaranteed to meet with a situation where you cause people offence. Or to, to put it the other way, if, you, if you're not someone who thinks you're, you don't think you're a Christian, you hear things that Christians teach, even maybe some of the things I'm saying right now, you, think, you find it offensive, I'm saying to you, please, please don't let that put you off. Not initially. That's not a reason not to engage with what Christians believe, is it? It's either true or it isn't. How you feel about it doesn't really affect that at all. So Stephen is a person who is willing to cause offense, and I think it's for this reason. And this is why I'm pressing this on you. This is why I think it's so important to hear what I'm saying. That the sicknesses of the human heart cannot be dealt with until they've been accurately diagnosed. So for Stephen, he he wants to tell people the truth because when people hear the truth, there is hope that change can happen. That healing can take place, that that repentance or a willingness to say sorry to God and to be changed can take place. But if you will not be confronted with reality, then you are saying, I am perfectly good the way I am. We have to be willing to offend. This life is not a popularity contest, as though that would ever count for anything in the end anyway. Even Jesus was not always popular. In fact, the way he speaks about his own ministry, he he identifies it as a ministry like an Old Testament prophet who had gone centuries before him, as a ministry of, of speaking to people who will hear but never really understand and see but never really perceive. He's saying that to be a truth teller is to not always be accepted. Some will accept, some will despise. But for God's sake, you must keep speaking. He's a witness then in what he says. He's a witness also in what he saw. In what he saw. And this is how the story unfolds. It says he, he has this vision, doesn't he? Of the heavens open, the Son of Man standing there, and people, it just riles up the crowd even more. And you need to really use your imagination to put yourself in this situation. He's in a room with... Mediterranean men, (laughs) Jewish men, heavily bearded men, garbed up in all their robes and everything to lose in the light of what this man is saying because he is condemning them. I remember a few years ago, well, probably about 15 years ago now, when things had really heated up in Zimbabwe and um, many of the white farmers were being um, turfed off their land and, you know, we, there's lots of questions about whether it was rightfully theirs in the first place, but what was happening was wrong when mobs were descending on their farms and, and, uh, and really um, often not just taking the families off the land, but also being violent. And you know how it is. You've seen the footage on TV, and we've seen it even in our own city when the London riots kicked off, that there's something about a mob that people lose all sense of rationality and reasonableness. They do things in a crowd that they wouldn't do in any other context because they become victims of groupthink. We're swept along with the emotions of the event. And, and Stephen is confronted by that here. The more he speaks, the more the atmosphere in the room is changing to the point where every eye is fixed on him in hatred. And what I want you to to ask is, do you think he was afraid in that moment? Do you think perhaps he even had doubts? I'm not sure that Stephen had ever even met Jesus. It's quite a strong likelihood that he'd only ever seen him from a distance at all and that what he had believed he'd taken on faith by believing the testimony of of the apostles, not through personal encounter with Jesus himself. And then, this extraordinary thing happens. He has this vision of Christ, standing at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the throne. And suddenly he becomes a witness, not only of the message that he's received, but of what he's actually seeing in that moment. And I think that this this whole event has two purposes. It it works in two directions. On the one hand, it had a purpose for the people he was speaking to, to kind of vindicate what Stephen was, was preaching about. There's a, a writer in one of the papers who wrote this a couple of weeks ago. He said, The four most beautiful words in our common language are, I told you so. And I think there's something about that, but without all the spite, in what Stephen says to them, when he has a vision of Jesus, effectively, you see, this is a, this is a, a world-changing claim. It's a claim of the highest possible significance to say that Jesus is now reigning at the right hand of God because it means that every one of us is accountable now to him as the judge. And therefore, for him to have this vision and then to relay it to them as he does, it's a kind of vindication to them that what he's saying is true. And also with that comes something of a warning. You know in Paul's letter to Philippians, he speaks about how Jesus, having taken on human flesh and been humbled by becoming man and then humbled further to die on the cross, now has been given the name above every name, that at the name of of Jesus, every every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What Paul's saying there is something which he's he's saying effectively that the, the claims about Christ make a demand on every life. That one day, whether now, voluntarily, or in the future, when you have no choice, you will be confronted with the reality of Jesus and you will have to bow your knee. You won't really have an option when you see him face to face. Everyone who encounters Christ in his glory finds themselves on their face or on their knees or in total awe and worship. And Paul wrote that many, many years later when he was suffering in a jail cell and it gave hope to his heart. But remember, this is something Paul himself had experienced on the road to Damascus when he'd gone in pursuit to kill Christians and then confronted with the reality of who Jesus is in the vision of Christ on the road to Damascus. He has to bow the knee. He has to say, Jesus is Lord. He has to confess Him as God. And So I think for, Peter, sorry, for Stephen to relay what he's seeing in this moment... Towards the crowd is a kind of vindication of everything that he's been preaching. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's also this. It's a comfort to him in what could have been the darkest hour of his life. Many people have pointed out something fascinating about this verse. Everywhere in the Bible when you you read about Christ in his, his place of authority, he is seated at God's right hand. But here he's not seated, he's standing. And you ask the question, well, why is that? Why, why does Stephen see Jesus standing at the right hand of God? And I think the answer is this, many people have observed, that he is standing in readiness. That as Stephen is about to, to be put to death, lynched effectively, Christ had got up from his seat to meet Stephen and to welcome him home. And you can well understand how this would be the most comforting, joy-giving experience that a person could ever go through. It says in the Psalms, in fact the very same Psalm that I was reading from at the beginning, it says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I think Stephen felt something of the sentiment behind that. That Christ was saying, your death is, is precious to me, Stephen. Do you remember also how when Paul, in that same jail cell where he he wrote the letter to the Philippians, and he's thinking he may well be put to death. And and there's this fascinating way that he begins to write to the Philippians. He says, and he says, I can't really choose whether it's better for me to die and to go to be with Christ or to live and to have continued fruitful work on the earth. He says, yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. For Stephen, the dilemma was totally gone in the moment that he saw Christ. Overwhelmingly, his heart would have said, yes, it is much better for me to go right now to be with Jesus. And this is where it becomes significant for us. That I think that as a Christian, your Christian life rises or falls on the degree to which you see Jesus. Very few people we will see what Stephen saw with their eyes. But there's a sense in which Christians have always spoken about having revelation to the heart, seeing Jesus in a, in a spiritual sense, perceiving who he is, being captivated by who he is, which is why we sang that song, which is a, taken from these verses in Hebrews 12, which I think are some of the most important verses for what it means to live the Christian life in the whole of the Bible. It says that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. In other words, as you're going through life, you have to make choices. So how do you make that choice to turn away from the things which are so seductive and tempting and delightful? Which for Stephen in that moment might have been, I'd like to carry on living right now. For you, it's different things moment by moment, day by day. And It says this. But we need to instead run with endurance the race that's set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That is how you live the Christian life. In fact, I'd say it's the only way you can live the Christian life. Your faith rises and falls on the degree to which you are captivated with the person and life and the glories of Jesus Christ. If he's nothing to you, your faith is nothing. If he's everything to you, you will do anything for him. And I think that's what's going on here. That as he witnesses to what he's heard and now what he sees, you're seeing him more and more being perfected into the witness that that God wants him to be. His whole heart is captivated by the vision of Jesus. And he can't do anything but relay that to the people. And finally... He is a true martyr witness in this, in how he died. Now listen, it's not the fact that he died that makes him a martyr. It's the way he died, the reason he died. And I want to draw your attention to to two things in particular that are characteristic or that, that give his death the quality of being a martyr death. And one of them is this. That even as he dies... He is communicating his faith, his absolute confidence of faith in the Lord who saved him. How? Well, in this, that he's totally fearless. I think the fear of death is natural. Do you fear death? Are you, do you go through life anxious about what might happen to you, to your health, and about death? Is it something that you think about? Perhaps not if you're young, but certainly the older you get, I think the more it begins to come into your mind. What would have happened if Stephen had been afraid in that moment? I'm not saying that it would have been unnatural or unforgivable or anything of the kind. But I think fear in the face of death would have in a way contradicted the message he was preaching. That I believe in a saviour who's risen from the dead. But we fear death nonetheless, don't we? We fear it for a number of reasons. One of them is, is because of its suddenness. When I was 19, uh, 18, 19, I spent a year um, working in a a company that dealt with mergers and acquisitions and it was a chance to earn some cash before I went to university. And um, I remember one one man there called Duncan, who was about 10 years older than me at the time. And he uh, was a lovely guy. I'd met him a couple of times, we'd had a few interactions and he'd organized the annual sort of um, go-karting, staff, team-building thing that we did, and he was actually one of the nicest guys in the firm. Not everyone is friendly when you go to work as you'll discover, but he really was and I liked him. Towards the end of my year there, one day um, in the afternoon, mid-afternoon I think it was, the news began to get out that something had happened to Duncan, and what had happened is that in the lunch hour, we worked in the middle of the countryside, and He'd go out for lunch and he'd gone out in his BMW. He's a bit of a petrol head and he loved driving fast in the country lanes and he'd gone out to go and buy uh, petrol for his radio controlled aeroplane. And apparently what had happened was on his way back to work so within probably 10 minutes of the office um, it seems that something had maybe run across the road, maybe a pheasant, there were loads of birds and that kind of thing in the area. He'd 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 veered to avoid it and he'd lost control of his car and his car had skidded off the road and hit the grass verge and flew in the air and rolled over and landed on its top. Hit a tree as well and came to a standstill. And they say that he was killed instantly. But the petrol had ignited in the car and it turned into a giant fireball as well. And, you know, when a guy's that young it was just it was totally shocking and death is a sudden thing isn't it i took comfort from the fact that one of my friends who was a christian who worked there much older than me had often spent time with duncan and had told him about jesus and we just hoped that maybe he had some kind of faith but we never knew and death is sudden it can come it can come at any time just i think two days ago my wife was on her facebook page and one of our friends Uh, from school or university, had posted a, a memorial to her boyfriend who'd been run over by a van in London. Death can come suddenly. And that's one of the reasons we fear it. We also fear it because it's just so uncertain if you don't have any idea what lies beyond the grave. Jerry Lee Lewis, who is a kind of rock and roll singer who Uh, was sort of an arch rival to to Elvis Presley, relays a story, and he he talks about himself having a faith, and he relayed the story of how he once asked Elvis Presley whether he believed that rock and rollers could go to heaven. I said, Elvis, I'm not going to do the accent. (laughs) He said, Elvis, I'm going to ask you one thing before we part company here. If you die, do you think you'll go to heaven or hell? And he got real red in the face, and then he got real white in the face, and then he said, Jerry Lee, don't you ever ask me that again. He was very frightened. No reason to doubt that story. Why would you make such a thing up? Elvis Presley was afraid of death, and he is dead, contrary to what many people believe. (laughs) The suddenness of death, the uncertainty of death. What about this? The apparent futility of it all when you face death suddenly life is put in perspective and it all feels so meaningless. What is that, just the end? Have I just come to the end? Is that it? Is that just it? Is that all that my life was about? What did I, what did I leave in the end? What difference did it make? I think it was never put more succinctly or more powerfully than in the poet, poem by Dylan Thomas, a Welsh poet who wrote a poem for his, for his dying father. It's about six verses long, but I'll just read to you a couple of verses. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. He goes on to speak of wise men and good men and wild men and grave men and how they all face death and they all must rage or feel the urge to rage against the dying of the light as they go into that good night. Then he closes off with this Stanza, which is directed directly to his father. He says, and you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Now, why would you feel the need to rage against death? I think it's if you don't know what life is is about. But Stephen, as he dies, does not have an even an element of rage in him. It says, as they were stoning him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He is going willingly, even joyfully, into death. I've seen this. My uncle, um, who I greatly loved and admired, died of cancer about 11 or 12 years ago. And he was a, a devout believer. He loved Jesus. I remember we went to visit him a number of times when he was in the hospice and he was dying of, of this you know, progressive cancer that just more and more took hold of his body so that he was, he was really immobile and he was, he was on painkillers. And even... As he was in his dying bed in in the hospice, he had thought for how we were. He gave me personal encouragements and there was joy in him. Sure, he was shedding tears from time to time. I think he was sad that he wouldn't see his grandchildren grow up. I think there were many things that would have saddened him. He was in the full flow with the work that he was doing as a headmaster of a Christian school. I think whenever you die... At that kind of age, you want to ask, well, why? I'd like to do more, Lord. But at the same time, there was profound peace in him as he went to the grave. My granddad died in his 80s, and I didn't know him well. My dad came from a, a dysfunctional family where his parents divorced when my dad was six years old. And his mom fled the home by packing up like a wheelbarrow of their of their of their possessions and taking the three kids and and basically leaving because her husband, my grandfather, was an abusive, violent man. He used to do wicked and cruel things. And he was also an atheist. And I'm not saying that the two go together. Please don't mishear me on that. But he was not a man who had any kind of faith. And my dad had no relationship with him for, for decades after that. When my dad turned 40... His older brother, who was forty-seven, my uncle Ray, had a, uh, a clot that went moved from his leg to his lung and killed him instantly. And when we went up to the funeral, events sort of came together so that my dad began to rebuild a relationship with his his earthly his natural his natural father, his biological father. But that relationship was strained because my dad's a pastor. And his dad was an atheist, and they'd never had a relationship. You can imagine how frosty and prickly it was whenever they got together. And, and my granddad made things worse. He would pour scorn on my dad's faith, mocking Christians and mocking what my dad did for his work and for a living. Well, about, probably about eight years ago, I think it was now, he was dying of cancer. And he was in his 80s, and my dad went up to visit him on his hospital bed and stayed a few days in Liverpool uh, over the days just running up to when he was about to pass away. And as he went to visit him at his bedside, he would share with him what he believed about Jesus. And he shared with him particularly from Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He leads me beside still waters. It just speaks of God's love and his peace doesn't it? And there's those famous lines where it says, yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So when, I'm, when death is, is, is upon me, I won't be afraid. And he began talking to him about what it means to have faith in Christ and how you can have confidence through death. And my granddad, against all expectation, all likelihood, and against a lifetime of hatred against God, gave his life to Jesus and became a Christian within days of, him, of his death. And in fact, in the moments before he died, sure he may have been drugged to the eyeballs with painkillers, I have no idea, but in the moments before he died, he sat upright and he said, I see a garden, I see trees and flowers, it's beautiful, I want to go there. And then he lay down on his pillow and he passed away. When Latimer, the great reformer, was being burned at the stake with Ridley, he said these famous words recorded by Fox. And he said, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. I'm relaying all these stories to you because I want you to see But the way Stephen died confirmed and compounded the things that he'd been preaching and testifying to. He had total peace in death. And that is the right, the birthright of a child of God. That death is no longer what it was to you. It's not the futile good night that you must rage against. It's the window into God's presence. And when people like Stephen have died in peace, they've given testimony and borne witness to the truth of what they believe. And so the way he died was as a martyr, as a martyr witness. But let me add this final point on that. It wasn't only his faith as he died, but it was also the heart and grace he communicated as he died. You see it, don't you, how in these verses, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell to his knees. And you can imagine his head as being pummeled and his body being pummeled with heavy rocks. And then he says, he called out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he he died. Anyone who knows their Gospels will know that these two sayings, these two sentences that he uttered are, are strongly reminiscent of two sayings that Jesus uttered as he was dying on the cross. Father, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Both recorded in Luke 23. And so even as he's dying, and the manner in which he's dying, and the heart that's being communicated as he's dying, he is in a way modeling what Christ wants to say to the world. That I trust God and that I want you to forgive these people because they don't know what they're doing. And it's so powerful because Stephen, if we just read his sermon, we might have thought he was a rather angry young man. We might have thought that he was in some way ashamed of his people and, and hating them. But it's not that. He's speaking the truth to them because he loves them so much. He just desperately wants them to know about Christ before, they, before it's too late for them, before they reject him altogether. I don't think it's possible to read his words any other way than to see this as the outflow, the passion of a heart that's been changed by the grace of God that Stephen had known what it was to be outside of God's presence and then to be brought in by the grace of God, his unmerited favor, that he says, "Oh, you are a sinner, I forgive you and I make you acceptable to me so that when you die you will go to be with me and your sin I will take away and cast it into the farthest parts of the sea. So as he's dying, he's not dying thinking, I'm better than all these people around me. He's dying thinking, I was just like them. But God had mercy on my soul. And now God, I just beg that you would extend that same mercy to them. And friends, this is the gospel. And I love how we can bring this all to such sweet closure. When we think about what's happening to one man here who's watching this. How God answers Stephen's prayer. I can put it like that. Because we see how everyone's, they're taking off their garments. They're getting so riled up and hot and they're, they're going, let's take him out of the city. Let's go and grab some stones. Let's go and kill this man. And as they undress from their outer garments and they lay them at the feet of a man named Paul, they're like, you look after that. We're going to go and kill him. And Paul's just, Saul has just stood there. And, he, and it says he's giving approval to all this. It says he approved of the execution. He's, he's delighted that these Christians are going to be wiped out. And what he doesn't realize is that as Stephen's dying, he is praying for for Paul. God, forgive them. Two chapters later, Saul, Paul, however you want to call him, has an encounter with Christ. His life is radically changed, and then he writes things like this. His heart so transformed. He has memories, no doubt. Of, of persecuting, of being part of these persecuting crowds. And then he writes things like this, like Romans 9. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. This is Paul. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed. He says, I'd rather go to hell and be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kinsman, according to the flesh. I find it such a wonderful turn of events that the very same spirit of sweet grace and forgiveness that Stephen is embodying even as he dies in praying for Saul is not only answered by God, by saving Saul and turning him into the apostle Paul to the Gentiles, but Paul's heart is so utterly transformed that now he'd much sooner give up all his rights as a, as a child of God, that even one of his people would come to faith. And I can't help but think that even though he didn't realize it at the time, Stephen's martyr death was having a profound effect on his heart. I think it was Tertullian who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church that as our blood is poured out onto the soil of Iraq, India, Iran, so many countries where Christians are being slaughtered, little do the persecutors know that God's gospel cannot be crushed by crushing Christians' bodies. And that even in their dying moments as they preach the gospel, as they fearlessly go to the stake. These martyr witnesses are bearing witness to the fact that Jesus lives and rules and reigns. And his grace is available for you. And here we are, Saul, Paul, utterly transformed by this message. The blood of that martyr was like seed sown in his heart. It came to full fruition when he was a transformed man. And friends, I have hope that we will see that in increasing measure in the days to come in the world in which we live. Now as we close, we're going to take communion. And friends, there are two ways in which you can approach this. If you are somebody who would not call yourself a believer, I want you to to think about The things I've been saying. Perhaps particularly think about death. Communion is a meal that preaches the death of Christ as a precursor to the life, the resurrection life of Christ. Given as a gift to all of us. What it means to be a Christian is to say, I want to enter into Christ's death. I want to be joined to Christ so that I can be raised with him on the last day. Now that might sound complicated, but it's just a very simple thing really. It's saying I believe that he died for me and that by dying for me, I don't have to die permanently. I don't have to be laid in the grave and then judged by God. I can be raised to life. And friends, as we take communion, I want you to just use these few minutes as an opportunity to think, am I as sure of my salvation as Stephen is? Am I sure that were I to die even now or tomorrow, that I would have peace in the face of death? But for us, and I know it's the majority here who are believers, who know Christ and who revel in what he's done for us, friends, take this as an opportunity to refresh your heart on the vision of Christ that so compelled Stephen that we would more and more be the kind of witnesses, the martyr witnesses that he was. What an example he is to us. This is our calling. It's nothing less. There's no reason why... Every one of us in this room oughtn't to be as radical and as full of fervor as this man was in his faith for Jesus, in his testimony.